Billington, Northwestern University, who will speak on the frontier origins of the Civil War. Dr. Billington. <laughs> Freshmen, members of the roundtable, when your very persuasive president called me on this occasion that he has mentioned about a year ago and pressed me into agreeing to appear on this occasion and persuaded me at the time also to name a topic upon which I would speak, I did not realize that I would be guilty of what I consider on greater reflection to be something of the hard sell. Uh, guilty of a title, in other words, comparable to that of uh, Lincoln's doctor's dog, uh, which is perhaps misleading. For when one speaks of those two magic words to a group such as this, the frontier and the Civil War, one conjures up a vision of cowboys, of desperados, of hard-riding Wild Western characters, of romantic battles and the like. Unfortunately, I find that I am not equipped to speak upon these glamorous phases of this topic. I am going, I'm afraid, to inflict upon you uh, some extremely tedious theory. I'm going to speculate with you concerning the causes of the Civil War. I'm going to be guilty even of employing a certain number of statistics in doing so. I warn you uh, that this is going to be the case. You may run, not walk to the nearest exit, uh, at the present time. Because what I would like to do this evening is to contribute a minor bit of speculation concerning that all-important topic of the origins of the war between the states. Historians and those interested in the Civil War have fought for generations on this particular matter. There are some who have maintained that this was an irreconcilable conflict, uh, that there was a gulf between the sections created by economic differences and by emotional differences uh, that could never uh, be bridged. There are others who have maintained that this was a reconcilable war, uh, that a proper element of compromise adequately used in the 1850s would have avoided an unnecessary conflict. There is a more modern group of historians who have labeled the generation of the 1850s as the blundering generation, and have insisted that human frailty and man's mistakes were responsible for this catastrophe uh, that swept the nation during this period. I do not want to take sides in this controversy, but I do wish to point out that in my opinion at least, many of these individuals who have con who contributed to this argument have been guilty of a faulty focus. They have concentrated their attention upon either North or South, and they have neglected a third area of our country, that vast West that lay beyond the Mississippi, that frontier region that was being settled in the decade of the 1850s, and that if we can take this section into consideration, we must adopt a newer point of view concerning the irreconcilability of this great conflict. For the thesis that I would like to advance tonight, for your consideration, I hope for your argument, is that the frontier, this westward moving area of new settlement, that the frontier was a dynamic institution. The frontier was certain, was bound, must move consistently westward. This was the case 
because the frontiersmen could never be held back as long as opportunity lay ahead. If there is anything in history that approaches an irresistible force, it is the American pioneer when good lands awaited his plow somewhere to the west of the farm uh, that he occupied. And so those frontiersmen were certain to move westward in the 1840s, in the 1850s, and on and on and on until the Pacific was reached. And as those frontiersmen occupied new lands, the question was certain to recur and recur and recur again. Should these lands that have been occupied be slave lands, or should those lands be free lands? As the nation endlessly debated this problem, the tensions mounted, nerves frayed on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, until those nervous tensions reached a breaking point. And the emotionalism bred of this recurring conflict over the status of Western lands was one of the factors most important, most responsible for making this an irreconcilable conflict. Now this certainly is demonstrated by the history of American expansion up to the time of the Civil War. For the history of American expansion is in effect a history of a series of crises on the subject of slavery, a series of crises, each growing in magnitude, each growing in seriousness, each growing in its universal effect upon the nation. We had such a crisis at the time that this portion of the country in which we live at this moment uh, was being opened for settlement. Uh, for when the Northwest Ordinance was adopted back in 1787, uh, the nation debated this matter and wrote into that Northwest Ordinance a phrase barring the existence of slavery forever from the lands north of the Ohio and east of the Mississippi River. Then as settlement continued to move westward into the lands beyond the Mississippi opened by the Louisiana Purchase, uh, the problem arose once more and in a new and more serious form. And again the nation debated. And the debate this time was far more serious than it had been in 1787. And again, a settlement was affected by compromise in that famous Missouri Compromise of 1820, in which the region then opened to settlement, the area of the Louisiana Purchase, the area as far west as the Rocky Mountains, was divided along the lines of 36 degrees 30 minutes, with the area north of that free territory, with the area south of 3630 open to slavery. But this was only a temporary compromise and was temporary only because the frontier would, must, uh, continue to move. For the Louisiana Purchase, so the Compromise of 1850, uh, 1830, affected only the Louisiana Purchase. And as the pioneers pushed beyond the Rocky Mountains into the lands that were owned by Mexico or claimed by Britain, as those lands were acquired in the Mexican War, the controversy arose once more and again in a far more violent form than it had in the past. Between 1846, when David Wilmot introduced his famous Wilmot Proviso into Congress, providing that all lands acquired for Mexico should be uh, barred to slavery forever, to 1850, uh, when Stephen A. Douglas and Henry Clay fashioned together that crazy quilt work of compromises that we call the Compromise of 1850. During that whole period, the nation debated this question of the status of slavery in those lands of the West, and the nation almost went to war on that occasion.
But again, this compromise of 1850 settled the problem only temporarily. For the frontiersmen who lived along the borders of settlement were already casting covetous eyes upon the lands that lay just beyond the border of Pira states uh, that fringed the western shores of the Mississippi. They were looking into the lands of Kansas, Nebraska, as we call them today, with particular interest. With such interest, indeed, that Congress felt called upon to open those lands to their settlements. And Congress did so uh, with the famous Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, fashioned by Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois in the hopes that his solution to this problem would forever end national debate upon the slavery question. For he proposed that this question be settled on a basis of popular sovereignty by creating two territories, those of Kansas and Nebraska, by saying that the people who lived within those territories, who settled those territories, should themselves decide whether those territories uh, should be slave uh, or free. This compromise failed as had the previous compromises uh, to solve the slavery question for all time. And this compromise failed because of forces basic to the whole frontier pattern of settlement, not because uh, the forces of slavery and freedom were necessarily irreconcilable, but because of the frontier processes which created a situation that in turn bred such heat, that in turn inspired such hatred, that the emotionalism naturally basic to the slavery controversy was again whipped uh, to new heights. And it is this conflict over the admission, or over the settlement of Kansas and Nebraska, and particularly over Kansas, that I would like to develop with you tonight as proof of these generalizations that I have been advancing. Now to do so, I would like to try to develop two things, to prove two propositions. First of all, that the warring factions which disrupted the orderly settlement of Kansas and which eventually turned Kansas into a battleground, that those warring factions were not lured to Kansas by any idealistic aims concerning slavery or freedom, but instead that they moved into that area as a part of the normal frontier process. And I would like secondly to try to demonstrate that the warfare that developed within Kansas that warfare that became a national scandal as bleeding Kansas flamed across the nation's headlines, that this warfare was primarily the result of conflicts basic to the frontier process, that this conflict was primarily one not over free land versus slave land, but a conflict over the ownership of land itself. Now let's look, first of all, at the first of these propositions, that the settlement of Kansas was a part of the normal frontier process and would have occurred virtually as it did whether or not there had been any controversy over slavery raging in the country at this time. Now this, it is true, is not the usual story that you will still find even in many textbooks uh, concerning the nature of that migration. According to that traditional classic story of the settlement of Kansas, the North was outraged by the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which opened an area possibly to slavery that had been closed to slavery uh, by the Missouri Compromise. And so, according to this traditional story, 
the outraged northerners, uh, the outraged abolitionists of New England particularly, uh, that home of Garrisonian abolitionism, those New Englanders decided uh, that they would turn the tables upon the South, uh, that they would enlist uh, the support of northern money, that they would enlist the support of northern idealists, and that they would use that money and those idealists to people Kansas with free state men, and thus frustrate this evil southern plot and win Kansas for freedom. And so according to this traditional story, these individuals formed emigrant aid societies, uh, which the most famous, of course, was the New England Emigrant Aid Society, uh, formed in uh, April of 1854 uh, by Eli Thayer, a prominent philanthropist and uh, uh, abolitionist in New England. And this New England Emigrant Aid Society, as it was chartered by the Massachusetts legislature, was supposed to raise money by philanthropic processes, was to use this money to provide free or cheap transportation to idealists who would go to Kansas and settle there, would then sell them lands at a moderate sum, and thus build up a population of free state men in Kansas that would eventually win Kansas for freedom rather than slavery uh, when the final vote uh, was taken. Eli Thayer wrote a book upon this subject called The Kansas Crusade that was published in 1887, in which Eli Thayer made the statement uh, that the New England Emigrant Aid Society was responsible for winning uh, Kansas uh, for uh, freedom. But did it? Did the flood of New Englanders who swept over Kansas in the years between 1854 and 1860 overbalance the Southerners who moved there to the degree that Kansas became a free territory and a free state? Was Kansas settled primarily by abolitionists, by individuals motivated by the highest of ideals of keeping slavery out of this area? Is this the truth? It's a romantic story. But if one turns to less romantic and glamorous evidence, if one begins looking at the census returns, one finds a completely different picture. Let me be guilty of using a few statistics, as I warned you that I would. I well realize that statistics, statistics are like children to be seen and not heard, uh, but it is necessary to use a few of them at least uh, to demonstrate this point uh, that I want to make. The census returns for 1860 for the territory of Kansas show that in all of Kansas in that year were living 4,208 people whose origin was in one or the other of the New England states. 4,208 people. In this six-year period where 4,208 people had come to Kansas from New England, some 12,000 had come to Kansas from New York and Pennsylvania, two other centers of abolitionism, although not of Garrisonian abolitionism, and two other areas in which the emigrant aid societies were operating. But at this same time, when some 16,000 persons were coming to New England from the Northeast, 30,000 persons had moved into Kansas uh, from Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois from the adjacent states, the nearby states of the upper Mississippi Valley. And the same story applies to the South. The lower South, the region where the fire eaters were centered, the area most concerned in the slavery conflict, the lower South, according to these returns, sent about a thousand persons into Kansas. 
And yet, about 9,000 Southerners moved into Kansas from uh, Kentucky and Tennessee. About 11,000 moved into Kansas uh, from Missouri. In other words, about 20,000 came from the adjacent states, only about 1,000 from the fire-eating centers of the South. Now, these figures, I think, will illustrate that idealism was not at least solely responsible uh, for the pattern of settlement in Kansas. And this is made clearer if we look a little further into these census returns. Thus, 4,208 persons, as I have said, left New England to go to Kansas between 1854 and 1860. At that same time, in that same period, 90,000 persons left New, left New England in order to settle in the states of the upper Mississippi Valley, Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, states that were already free, states where the slavery controversy was a not, not at all concerned. Some 6,000 persons left New York to establish themselves in Kansas during this period. At that same time, in that same period of six years, 220,000 persons left New York to settle in these five states of the upper Mississippi Valley, already won for freedom. And the same applies as far as the southern states were concerned. There, some 6,000 persons uh, left Tennessee to settle in Kansas. But 85,000 persons left Tennessee to settle in Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas, states that were already safely in the slave column or just one final bit of evidence, and perhaps the most convincing one of all. 4,208 New Englanders left Kansas, uh, left New England for Kansas. At that same time, 6,000 New Englanders left their homeland to settle in Missouri. More New Englanders were settling in Missouri than settling in Kansas during these years. Kansas, uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, rather, contributed far more persons during these years to the population of Illinois than they did to the population of Kansas. Now, what do these figures mean? They mean simply, I think, that these individuals who were moving westward during these years were responding to forces basic in the whole frontier process and were motivated not at all or scarcely at all by the conflict that was going on over the freedom or slavery question in Kansas. An able Southern historian, William Lynch, writing in the Journal of Southern History, says, most migrating Southerners and Northerners likewise would have sought homes and opportunities just about where they did had slavery not existed between 1783 and 1861. This, I think, is the case. Normal frontier forces were operating. What were they? They were obvious, of course. One was the ease of migration. Through the whole history of the settlement of our continent, individuals have been inclined to follow easy routes westward and to move into, into areas adjacent to their homeland. It was difficult to move from New England to Kansas. It was relatively easy to move from Illinois or Iowa or Ohio to Kansas. And so the ease of migration, the possibility of simply moving on into an adjacent area, was one of the factors responsible for the pattern of migration uh, that did take place. And then a second reason, perhaps, that had some influence 
was the situation that existed within the eastern states. The New England states, New York and Pennsylvania, had been draining population westward for a generation. The population that swept across Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, into Iowa and Minnesota. The population that peopled the upper portion of the Lake Plains area. This population had been moving out of the older states of the East uh, for a generation now, and the migration impulse was less strong there. But in the newer states of the upper Mississippi Valley, a surplus population was just beginning to develop. As the area was filling rapidly, and had filled for, most, for the most part, as younger sons were finding it difficult to buy cheap land, as they looked ahead to the opportunity that lay on the frontier, uh, for a place where they could begin farming uh, with their families. And then finally, of course, the principal factor responsible was the desire for economic betterment, the desire for good lands, the desire for security, are the forces that always led people westward in the whole history of American migration. And if you consider this factor as a serious one, and we must certainly, it can be argued with a degree of logic at least that the slavery controversy in Kansas kept people out of that region rather than drawing people into that region. For individuals hesitated to go into Kansas. The more sober, respectable individual thought twice before he made that move. If he came from the north because he feared that he might have to compete with a slave system and he feared that system. If he came from the south because he recognized that Kansas would become an area of turbulence and that his extensive property in the form of slaves uh, would not be safe there. And so I think we can argue that if the slavery question affected the migration into Kansas at all, it served as a deterrent to that migration rather than as a lure for that migration as Eli Thayer and others of his ilk have maintained. That is one point I would like to make. The second point is a somewhat more difficult one, and one that is less evil, easily proven, one indeed that I cannot attempt to substantiate. I can do little more than suggest it to you, because it does seem to me to contain at least uh, the germ of truth. And that is this, that the conflicts that resulted in the, as the result of the settlement of Kansas, the conflicts that turned Kansas into bleeding Kansas, the conflicts that took many lives and led to the destruction of much property, that these conflicts were again normal to the frontier process, and that they were not primarily, not entirely, conflicts between the forces of slavery and freedom, that these conflicts instead were primarily for land, and that the concern was not with free soil or slave soil. The concern instead was with good farm country. Now, in substantiation of that generalization, let me point out that the history of the settlement of the entire upper Mississippi Valley illustrates this point well. For the history of the settlement of Illinois, of Wisconsin, particularly of Iowa, is a history of turbulence, a history of almost constant conflict, and a conflict not over elements of slavery and freedom, of course, because that question was not involved there, 
but a conflict between individuals for the best lands that were available. These conflicts developed inevitably as a result of the land system that was then functioning for the United States. For the United States was being settled in these years under the terms of the Preemption Act of 1841. This Preemption Act had been designed as a means of allowing individuals to pay for their farms from the proceeds of the farms themselves. It opened all surveyed lands to squatters, to individuals who did not make any down payment, who simply moved on to the surveyed lands of the public domain. And once they had moved to these lands, they could establish a right to those lands, a preemption right, by marking out their claim, by building a cabin, and by working those lands. And then eventually, when these lands were put up for sale, they would have preempted these lands. That is, they would have a right to buy them at the usual government auctions at the minimum price of a dollar and a quarter an acre. Now, this preemption system was designed to aid the poorer farmers of the West. But this preemption system was open to abuse because it did not close the door of opportunity to that individual who was ever present in the frontier process, the land speculator or the land jobber. The land jobbers soon recognized an opportunity basic to this whole system. A frontiersman would move upon a section of land and preempt 160 acres of it as the law allowed. This frontiersman would then establish his claim by beginning to build a cabin. Perhaps he had to leave uh, for a time. A land speculator would move in and appropriate this land that he had already taken for himself. Claim, claim jumping uh, was a common practice in many areas of the West uh, at this time. But the real problems developed uh, when these lands were placed on sale at the government auctions. For the settler, by preempting his land, had a right to buy it at a dollar and a quarter an acre. But the speculator would move in. Uh, he would use his influence upon the government agents who were selling this land. He would overbid the, the, the settler, the squatter, and he would acquire this land uh, for himself, paying a higher price than the dollar and a quarter uh, that, the, that the squatter himself uh, could afford uh, to pay. The squatters soon realized that they had to protect themselves against these land speculators. And the way they did so was to form what they called claim associations. That is, a group of the squatters of a particular area uh, would combine together into this extra-legal organization, this claim association. They would use their force of numbers to keep the claim jumpers and the speculators out. And woe unto a claim jumper who came into an area where a claim association uh, was functioning. Uh, for this claim association would use its mass numbers. Uh, they would gang up on the speculator or the claim jumper. Uh, they would drive him out of the area. Uh, they would kill him. Uh, they would beat him. They would make it clear to him that he was not welcome. These claim associations always attended the government auctions in a body, uh, ready to see to it that no speculator outbid a settler uh, for the lands that that settler wanted. And any speculator who tried to do so uh, was certain to receive extremely ill treatment. Now, this was a common practice in all frontier areas. In Iowa alone, which was settled in the late 30s and the 1840s, just before Kansas was settled, in Iowa alone, uh, there were more than 100 claim associations functioning. 
This led to constant turmoil, a constant conflict, as a minor civil war went on in every frontier area between claim jumpers and speculators on the one hand and between the actual settlers on the other. But it was a war that attracted no attention in the public press whatsoever. It was the common thing. It was expected. No one paid any attention to it. Foreign travelers noticed it, yes. Charles Dickens' vitriolic account of American life in the Mississippi Valley, of the turbulence of the warfare, of the eye-gouging of the brutality of the boy knives. Uh, Dickens' account is based partly upon the fact that he observed these fights over land. And as a result, he gained the impression that all Americans were an eye-gouging group. He, as an outsider, was aware of these things. But they were so commonplace to Americans that no attention was paid to them. Now, this was the type of conflict that was to develop in Kansas. But in Kansas, this conflict was to assume far more serious proportions than it did in other parts of the West at this time. And it assumed these proportions because there were several factors operating in Kansas that intensified the situation, that intensified the conflict for land. Thus, what were some of these conditions? One was the fact, of course, of the geography of Kansas. Because Kansas was a semi-arid region, in order to have an effective and operating farm in Kansas, you had to have water and timber rights. And thus the areas along the streams where alone timber grew and where alone water could be obtained, those were the prized areas. An upland farm was valueless unless it had access to water rights. And so individuals, speculators, claim jumpers, who could secure some of these prize sites along the streams uh, were in a far more favorable position to make profits for themselves. They realized this, and these areas were in particular a dispute. Then, too, this region, this period in which Kansas was being settled, coincided, unfortunately, with a period when land speculation was at its height. This was a period of prosperity leading up to the Panic of 1857, a period when California's gold from the rush uh, was spreading itself over the country with an inflationary effect upon prices, a period in which American crops were in ready demand in Europe as a result of the effect of the Crimean War upon European production, a period of heavy immigration to the United States, increasing the home market uh, for Western goods, a period of a rapid movement of population westward. A period, in other words, in which land speculators had plenty of money, in which they realized that the fortunate individual getting the choice lands ahead of the actual settler would make vast for, uh, profits for himself in this day of prosperity. A period in which speculation was rampant and at its height. And so the speculators could come rushing into Kansas as they did into few other places, rushing in with their money in their hand uh, to appropriate uh, the best lands that were possible. And then, in the third place, the situation in Kansas was complicated by the fact that most of the settleable portions of eastern Kansas were not actually open to settlers at the time that they were open to settlers. This was the case because all of eastern Kansas, at the time that the territory was open for settlement, all of eastern Kansas was actually still in the possession of various Indian tribes. 
for it had been the custom of the government since 1825 uh, to move Indians out of the eastern half of the United States, where their lands were desired, and to transplant them to the west. A number of tribes, particularly from the old northwest, had been moved out to Kansas and been given reservation lands along the eastern borders of Kansas, so that the high, whole area uh, from the Missouri River on the north to the Red River on the south, uh, that whole area along the eastern fringe of Kansas consisted of a series of great Indian reservations. Now, the government realized, of course, that these reservations would be wanted once the demand for the opening of Kansas began. And so the government provided uh, that the uh, Indian Bureau should begin making treaties in order to secure these lands, open these lands to settlement. But the order to begin making these treaties with the Indians uh, did not come until the spring of 1853. Actually, the Indian office did not begin negotiating these treaties until the spring and summer of 1854. And so when Kansas actually was opened on May the 30th, 1854, these lands were still in Indian hands. Not a single one of these treaties had been ratified by the Senate. There was not a single inch of land in Kansas that could legally be occupied uh, by settlers. Now, this meant that the whole situation there would be in a state of confusion. And this confusion was multiplied by the inept handling of the entire situation by Congress and by the governmental officials. For Congress ruled that these Indian lands that were being taken over and eventually offered for sale, that these Indian lands, contrary to custom, should not be turned over to the public land office treated as part of the public domain, come under the Preemption Act, but instead that these Indian lands should be sold by the Indian office for the benefit of the Indians. That, thus, the Indian office decided that some of these lands would be sold outright, not under the land office, but with the Indian office selling these lands to the highest bidder. They decided that other lands should be reserved for the Indians, and they decided that still other land should be turned over to the Indians, and those Indians could do with them as they pleased. But this matter was further complicated by the ruling that competent Indians could sell their lands, but incompetent Indians were not allowed to. And nobody knew who a competent Indian was and who an incompetent Indian was. And so the, the whole situation was in a state of, of, of utter confusion, you see. With the land office selling land or eventually going to sell land, with the Indian office selling Indian lands, with the Indians themselves selling lands, with nobody knowing who was a competent and who was an incompetent Indian, who could sell lands. You read the Kansas guidebooks for this period. Guidebooks, of course, were always hustled from the presses uh, whenever a new area was opened. And you read those Kansas guidebooks, and you'll, you'll find this confusion reflected. The authors of the guidebooks had the slightest idea how anybody could obtain land in Kansas. And they gave a lot of extremely bad advice uh, as a result. Now, this was bad enough. But in addition, the government blundered in not ordering the survey of land in Kansas, even of the public domain, as that gradually was opened. It was not until July 22, 1854, that the surveys were ordered by Congress. July 22, 1854. Kansas had been open to settlement on May 30, 1854. And yet, surveys were not authorized 
until July uh, the 22nd. The result, of course, of this complexity of errors was a state of confusion, a state of actual bedlam within Kansas itself. The first on the ground were the speculators of two different sorts. Some of them were professional speculators, representatives of great land companies, land companies based in New England, in New York, in the South. Uh, with infinite resources behind them, they began buying up Indian office lands or buying up lands directly from the Indians and buying the choicest sites. And then close upon their heels came the Missourians, the individuals from just across the border, the Missouri border ruffians, as they love to call themselves, they moved in in a body because they were on hand, not because they intended to stay in the region, but because they wanted to secure choice sites and hold them for speculative purposes. According to territorial law, each individual was entitled to take out two sections of land under the Preemption Act. And so they, uh, so they uh, proceeded. Uh, to take out, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say two sections, two 160-acre plots, two quarter sections, and so each one of them proceeded to take out two of these, uh, uh, of these claims. Then they marked their claims, marked their claims in the usual fashion by driving in four stakes into the ground or by building a log cabin, and a log cabin had been conveniently defined for frontier purposes. Uh, four logs put together in the shape of a foundation of a cabin uh, did for a log cabin. And they would lay four logs together, a little pile of logs. Then they would go back to Missouri and leave their claims, expecting to keep those claims, having entered a claim for them. One careful study that has been made showed that three years after the first settlement, only 41% of the initial claimants were still on hand. The rest of them, a majority in other words, were simply Missourians who had crossed the border, staked out their claims, then gone back. Now, this was the first study. Then, close on their heels, only a few months later, the Northerners began to move in. Those who came from Illinois, those who came uh, from Ohio and Indiana, those who came to some degree uh, from the Northeast and from New England. And these Jayhawkers, as they came into Kansas, refused to recognize the absentee claims of the Missourians who had been there first. They looked upon them all as speculators whose rights were of no importance whatsoever. And so claim jumping began in Kansas on a phenomenally large scale, with these Jayhawkers coming in and jumping the claims uh, of the Missourians. And the Missourians naturally would fought, fight back. They began forming protective leagues, as they call them. And the Free Staters answered by forming claim associations. And the claim associations and the protective leagues began engaging in battles uh, for the land. Now, the slave issue was involved, of course. Uh, one group of antagonists were free state men. Another group of antagonists uh, were slave state men. Uh, and this was an excuse for all manner of pillaging, of murder, of horse stealing, of counterfeiting, of killing of individuals, some in the name of Southern chivalry or the higher law, but really land was at issue. And the second stage of the conflict was reached. When these lands were surveyed, and these lands were eventually placed on sale, the surveys of the northern portion of Kansas, the region north and east of the Kansas River, were not completed until October the 20th, 1856. 
But the reason, but the region of conflict was the area south of the Kansas River. And I think there is a significance to the dates of survey of these areas. For these areas south of the Kansas River, the area of John Brown, the area of the Pottawatomie Massacre, the area of the Lawrence Raid, these areas had the outer lines, the township lines surveyed at this time, and the orders were issued for the internal surveys, the surveys into actual sections, into actual farms. These surveys were ordered between October 1855 and March 1856. It is significant that warfare flamed in this region, the warfare that brought bleeding Kansas its notoriety, that this warfare flamed between December 1855 and June 1856. The surveys, October, warfare began in December. Surveys ended in March, warfare went on until after June 1856. For these surveys and the sale of land precipitated a new phase of the conflict. For as the lines were run by the surveyors, men found overlapping claims, men found that the claims they thought were theirs belonged to somebody else, Claim associations and protective leagues moved into action, and once more, warfare flamed over this whole, whole area. And that warfare flamed again when the first lands were placed on sale at Leavenworth in November of 1857. For loan sharks and land speculators were there. Squatters were there also to protect their rights. They jammed Lemon Leavenworth. Three or 4,000 of them flocked into that frontier hamlet uh, for those land sales. And the division there was not between free state and slave state men. The division there was between the speculator, loan shark on the one hand, and the squatter, small farmer on the other. A correspondent of the St. Louis Republican noted there, no party cries have been raised, and the pro and anti men seemed to, bl to blend harmoniously uh, for the time. But the conflicts were there. The conflicts between these two groups, not of slavery and freedom, but the conflict between speculator and farmer. Now, I do not want to imply in this description that I have given you that all of the conflicts that took place were over land, that slavery had no part in this story at all. Obviously, the facts dispute any such statement as this. For certainly John Brown was not motivated by a desire for land when he led his followers in the raid of Pottawatomie. Certainly the sack of Lawrence by the slave state men was not an evidence of a desire for land or a desire to support speculators. But I would suggest that a great many of these conflicts that did take place, that a great many of them were inevitable, and that the ownership of land, rather than the question of slavery or freedom, provided a basis for this conflict. Certainly, that was the view of many contemporary individuals. One Kansas newspaper editor, for example, wrote, it is a historical fact that almost all of the contentions which result in bloodshed in the settlement of a new country have their origin in some dispute over land claims. And another added, there is no more fruitful source of difficulty in Kansas than this. Each week adds to the list of murders in our territory, mostly growing out of this one thing, 
and there is no law to come to the rescue and settle the differences arising between parties on this point. And so, gentlemen, it would seem to me that Kansas bled not for slavery, not for freedom, but to a considerable degree, Kansas bled for land. This was a normal type of frontier conflict. But because this conflict was occurring in Kansas, because the nation north and south of the Mason-Dixon line had been stirred by the conflict over the uh, adoption of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the newspaper press of the nation fastened upon this conflict as an example of the ruthlessness of slavery on the one hand, or of the eager aggressiveness of the northerners on the other. And the nation's press magnified what was actually a conflict over land into a conflict over slavery. As the nation's headlines flamed with this conflict, as northern indignation mounted day after day with each tale of a new atrocity from south uh, from bleeding Kansas, as southern chivalry was stirred by tales of similar conflicts as reported in the southern press, as this process went on day after day for these crucial months, tempers and nerves were so inflamed on each side of the Mason-Dixon line that a war came virtually as a relief to those nervous tensions. And so I would contend, John, that these conflicts, these normal frontier conflicts, had created a situation that did make a civil war inevitable, that from the point of view of the West, this was an irrepressible conflict. Thank you.